You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Molly, look at this over here. It's a gene sequencing machine. Maybe we ought to sequence your genes. Right, you wouldn't have been able to sequence the human genome without a machine like this. Yeah, well, I'm sure that this is a lot smaller than they used to be. That's impressive. Well, what else do we have here? It looks like this is a sonogram. Yeah, it's an ultrasound device. You know, like if you want to look inside your body, maybe if you're pregnant or something like that, you want to see that the baby's okay. They use ultrasound. It's completely non-invasive. You don't even hear it. Well, where we are seeing all these incredible devices is in the heart of Silicon Valley. This is San Jose's Tech Museum. It's really an homage to science and technology invention. Wow, there's a lot of electronic technology here, too. I guess you'd expect that in the Silicon Valley. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. This is Better Mousetrap on Big Picture Science. As we explore what makes an inventor and what makes good ideas take off. And you know, Seth, it looks like there are a lot of good ideas that are featured here. This museum is pretty big, it's colorful, there are lots of different displays, blinking lights, sounds, and so forth. I guess you'd say the whole museum's a good idea. <laughs> I'm not sure it was invented, though. <laughs> a lot of it is directed towards children. I just saw a little girl over there on an interactive machine about computer chips that describes how computer chips are different from potato chips, and potato chips you can eat. Yeah, I understand potato chips. <laughs> have you ever eaten a computer chip? Probably yeah. someone has somewhere. <laughs> well, that's right. You, you might have swallowed your cell phone by accident. I'm Elena Connor. I'm the vice president of content development here at the Tech Museum. Hi, Elena. Well, the, the question, the first question that we really have is, what is it that unites everything at the Tech Museum? You have a lot of things going on here. What's the overarching principle? Yes, we do have a whole lot going on. We have seven different galleries, and what unites all of them is the idea of innovation and of science and technology as processes, not just products. So this is a little different than most science museums. I mean, there are no you know, skeletons of dinosaurs here. I don't see a whole lot about you know, rockets going to the moon. This is mostly about technology, I guess, the name of the museum, the tech, uh, bespeaks that, but we are in the Silicon Valley. That's right. Most of the exhibits you see here on the floor, are, in fact, all of the exhibits are fully interactive. We invite people to create and play and experiment and invent and try something new, even if people tell you it's a bad idea or a dumb idea or unlikely to work, as well as reaching out to people and collaborating to get your great ideas out the door and into the world. Hang on, Elena. We'll want to talk to you a little bit more Seth, let's go over here and take a look around. A lot of what we see around here is high tech, but a lot of invention in the old days, at least the way we think of it, the way that you're always reminding me, was old-fashioned tinkering. I suppose a lot of tinkering went on in, in some of these devices here for them to be created. Yeah, in a sense, they're reprising what people like Ben Franklin did a couple hundred years ago, right? He had an idea, he worked on it for an afternoon, and he would come up with something uh, remarkable. I mean, Thomas Jefferson used to do that. I don't know if our modern-day presidents are inventing very much. 
Ben Franklin could do that in an afternoon, come up with something remarkable? Well, Ben Franklin wasn't your average guy, i got to say. <laughs> well, the idea is that you play around with a lot of different ideas, that great inventions don't just pop out of your head. No, usually they say necessity is the mother of invention. They never talk about the father of invention for some reason. But in any case, you have a problem, a recurring problem, like, you know, there's some task you have to do that's really, really boring or difficult or maybe just dangerous, and pretty soon you go down in the basement, you build some machine that relieves you of that problem. Well, someone who spent a lot of time, in, not in the basement, but in his garage, was Lonnie Johnson. He has something like 100 patents, and while he was growing up in Alabama, he did what a lot of boys did, young boys, well, and girls too, I think, but mainly boys, which is they built stuff. This was in the 1950s. They went into the garage and they tinkered around and they built stuff. Yeah, only he went farther than just building stuff. From building rockets in the backyard, he graduated to being a real rocket scientist at NASA, where he worked on the Galileo mission to Jupiter. He also, by the way, invented the Super Soaker squirt gun. I don't know if you've ever been a, a victim or a perpetrator of the Super Soaker, Molly, but that was the mother of all water blasts. <laughs> no, it looks like it would be, it would hurt if it hit you, all that water coming at you. Well, the profits from that thing, I guess you could call them liquid assets, have helped him today. <laughs> He's now working on energy conversion technology at his company, Johnson Research and Development in Atlanta. That's right. He's working on developing a heat engine he calls the JTEC, the Johnson Thermoelectric Energy Converter. A twist on the solar cell. Now, how did he get where he is? Well, old-fashioned stick-to-itiveness, staring down the naysayers, and, oh yeah, some really good ideas. Well, Lonnie, you have more than 100 patents, I understand, and one of them, and we're going to talk about some of the things that you've invented is it true that it's for a diaper that plays a musical nursery rhyme alarm when the diaper gets wet? It's interesting how intriguing that invention is. People <laughs> like to refer to it. Um, yes, I invented a, a diaper monitor when, and I came up with the idea when I had small children and at least two of them were in diapers and I wanted to know when the diapers were soiled. And so the idea was to have something that I could attach to the outside of diapers. So that would sense the moisture through the wall of the diaper without getting soiled and let me know when it was wet. Which nursery rhyme is it? <laughs> well, it depends on what software you put in there. That's programmable. Oh, terrific. We, so you can personalize it for your child. Yeah, you could. So then the child forever associates that song with going to the bathroom. <laughs> yeah, I, could, I can envision uh, an adult hearing a music and all of a sudden <laughs> wondering why they get that urge. <laughs> Well, I wanted to start with that example just because as, as we talk, the range of your inventive mind is, is truly spectacular, and that just gives one idea of where your head is at. And, you know, there was something that a writer once said, if you want to know something about a person, find out what they were doing when they were seven years old, and nobody was bothering them, and they could do whatever <laughs> they wanted. What were you doing at age seven? I was tinkering, <laughs> either taking my toys apart or my... Um siblings' toys apart and trying to figure out what was on the inside. One of your siblings was your sister, right? Right, right. And what did you take apart of hers? Well, a number of things. I took dolls apart, actually, I confess, <laughs> to see what made the sound inside. I even took my bicycle apart at one point to build a, a windmill. <laughs> Do you remember what was driving you then? I mean, you made rockets, a robot, you were taking apart your sister's dolls. I mean, a lot of kids are curious. A lot of kids are curious, but they don't go so far as to then take something apart or try to figure out why things work? Well, that's a good question. You know, why such determination? Just curiosity uh, more than anything else. I remember making rockets when I was a kid, and my first rockets were really dangerous. 
<laughs> because I had um, rockets. I would I, I would have them sitting in front of me and not knowing any better, I tried to launch it and the thing just blew up right in my face. And all I remember is hearing ringing in my ears and seeing stars in my eyes and just totally being faced out. <laughs> Were you at <laughs> least from, outside when you did this? Or did you, yeah, did that, you, one, that one was outside. There are others that weren't outside. I believe you were born in Mobile, Alabama. Correct. Is that right? 1949? 49, that's correct. Okay, so you were doing this in the in the 50s and the early 60s. And in fact, in the early 60s, you won an engineering contest because you built a robot. Correct. Can that you was, describe that robot? Yeah, that was Lonix, my alter ego. By the time I got into high school, I built this robot. The only robots back then were, you know, the robots that were on TV that had people inside and so forth. And I wanted to have my own robot. Um, it was in the 60s when Rush to the Moon was on, and it was just an exciting time for technology. So you got to work, and you built this robot, and I believe it was from an old jukebox. Is that right? Parts were from an old jukebox. That's right. Uh, other parts were aluminum tubing and coat hangers in there, pieces of coat hangers that I cut up into little metal rods because I needed to have some push rods. I had a uh, old pro- propane tank from like a gas stove or, or grill that I um, pressurized with uh, air at a filling station. And so the compressed air is what I used to operate the uh, pneumatic cylinders. It sounds like you had the tendencies to be a rocket engineer when you were young, and you actually went on to become an engineer at NASA's JPL, and you helped design the Galileo mission to Jupiter. Now, did you find that in in designing this spacecraft that you were pulling on any of the strategies used as a young boy, that you had to think sort of, you had to think in innovative ways about how to use different objects in order to create something new? Well, you know, there was one problem we ran into that had to do with the spacecraft memories. Uh, Galileo uses uh, uses, uh, volatile memories, meaning that you have to have power to the memories in order to maintain and keep the information active in those memories. And so one of the big concerns was that if there was somehow a short circuit on the spacecraft, and if for some reason that fault couldn't be cleared within a finite period of time, the uh, spacecraft power would be lost to the memories and the memories would be wiped out. So I came up with a uh, what was called a memory keep alive power supply that could be implemented on the spacecraft. And if power did come back, the spacecraft would uh, indeed recover and be able to recover fully. That must have been an extraordinary moment to to watch your creation. I mean, it was a collaboration, of course, as any NASA mission is, but to watch that blast off into space. Well, you know, what's even more rewarding to me personally, it was one, it was a situation where a lot of my peers had actually told me that that idea would not work. So when I decided to present it, I went and talked to the uh, chief systems engineer, and I told him that, well, you know, these guys are going to tell you that this won't work. And when they tell you that, let me know. I'll go home and build one in my garage and bring it in. And uh, that was enough to motivate him to uh, really push forward. <laughs> and um, the people who actually had to put the circuit together did successfully put it together and made it work. And I had people actually come to me and apologize for what they said <laughs> about my idea. <laughs> But there's a difference between persevering for yourself and working on something and tinkering with something and building something, and it's another to convince somebody else that you have a good idea. And what is the strategy that you use? Because if you just go back in and keep saying, I know I can do this, I know I can do this, doesn't mean they'll listen to you. You have to, <laughs> you have to win them over. And how does one do that? How do you get someone else to recognize the genius of your own idea? Uh, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you, um, you don't, quite honestly. 
I guess I've been kicked out of some of the highest office in government. <laughs> That's sort of a badge of honor, isn't it? Yes, yeah, what it seems like. <laughs> One follow-up on that, on this on this question of persistence, perseverance, and because it, it fascinates me, this idea of sort of people who make it and don't. And it sounds like in the case with NASA, you didn't just go away, come back the next day and plead your case again. You went away and built something and well, came back and said, is that right? And let me show you how it works. Oh, no, I threatened to build it. And, and they didn't want me to go home and do something in my garage. <laughs> oh, that's even better. You threatened to go home <laughs> and build this power supply in your own garage. And they right. said they didn't want you to do that? <laughs> they didn't say that, but it was enough to um, provoke them to take a serious look at it and try to do it themselves. So you made millions of dollars in sales with a super soaker. It doesn't matter what the figure was. You made money with a super soaker. Right. Um, but there was really a, a means to an end. It was an invention of one thing so that you could do something else, really. That was my understanding. Correct, yeah. And, and what is that something else? Well, you know, at the time, you know, I, I was working on the uh, heat pump when I came up with, with the idea for the water gun. And the very first thing I did when I relocated to Atlanta and settled into my new home was to start working on that heat pump again. The JTEC. And I understand that the J stands for Johnson. Is that right? Right. Okay. Johnson Thermoelectrochemical Converter. Okay. okay. <laughs> There's a reason for that. I attended college at Tuskegee University. And, of course, that's where, where Dr. George Washington Carver had done all of his work with the peanut. And the university really hadn't benefited directly from any of that research and any of his creations. All of that um, information was given away. And there's a lot of history where a number of inventions by African Americans have been attributed to other people. And so I, and I didn't want to see that happen to this particular invention. Now, the JTEC is a new way of extracting sunlight and turning it into useful energy. But, but we have something that can do that. It's, it's a solar cell. How is this different? The uh, JTEC is a heat engine. It converts heat into electricity. In fact, it doesn't matter where that heat comes from. The sun just happens to be one convenient and really optimum source of heat. So when you presented this idea of the JTEC to the Office of Naval Research, which is the Navy's R&D effort, what was their reaction? Well, their reaction was to dismiss it. The impression that uh, people received was that you know, that was just a crackpot who had just come up with something that wouldn't work. And so it was just dismissed, and I couldn't get anybody from that organization to really pay attention to it seriously anymore. Okay, but this was something that you were used to at this point, that you'd, yeah, go, you'd go in with an idea, you'd, <laughs> well, you'd have to go away. Maybe this was the first time they actually called you a crackpot, but how did you turn around and come back and present the idea to them again? Well, the super circle allowed me to do that because now I had enough resources that I could pursue the technology on my own at one point, after getting rejected so much, I um, got together with my team and we disguised what we wanted to do as a solution to a fuel cell, a real fuel cell problem. It was a real problem for fuel cells. And we wanted to come up with this new material that would solve that problem. But the idea, this was already a known and a proven concept. So if they right. felt like it, you were attaching right. yourself to that, it was like, okay, this might work. Yeah, but I, they, yeah, the idea was that a fuel cell was something they could relate to. So Lonnie, where is the JTEC now? And what does an inventor do while waiting for an invention to take off? <laughs> well, you continue to work on it and refine it uh, to the extent that you have resources to do it. We're actually in the process of putting together a demonstration unit that would really show the potential efficiency levels of this engine. Okay, well, we'll keep our fingers <laughs> crossed. I really wish you the best of luck. Thank you very much for talking to us. It's been my pleasure. I've enjoyed this very much. 
Lonnie Johnson is an inventor who holds more than 100 patents, including the one for the Super Soaker squirt gun. He's CEO of Johnson Research and Development, where his team works on advanced energy technologies. You know, Seth, maybe we'll see the JTEC in the Tech Museum one day. Well, you know, Molly, maybe one day the JTEC will power the Tech Museum. We can only hope. Well, I'm not sure that anyone tinkers in their garage the way that Lonnie Johnson did growing up, Seth, although I believe that you did. That was something that you loved doing as a young boy. Yes, but as you point out, that was, you know, during the time of the Roman Empire. But it's true that I built a crystal set radio when I was eight years old, fell asleep to it every night with the earphones on. I built lots of stuff. My father called me a troglodyte because I was always down in the uh, basement building something. Did you engineer a lot of roads? Because that's what the Romans worked on. Yeah. Did you some... help them with that? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was actually before their road building spree. <laughs> Do you think young people today make things anymore, build things anymore? Well, you know, it's hard for me to tell. My impression is that they don't spend as much time building things like electronic devices or mechanical devices. Now, maybe they're all developing software. I mean, you look at things like Facebook, Twitter, and so forth. Those are mostly the inventions of young people, but they're not, you know, sort of the tinkering kind of inventions that you normally think of involving soldering irons and pliers, but they're just as clever. Well, we'll hear more about invention and also about how and why inventions take off. Now, Lonnie Johnson spoke to us about perseverance and having a good idea, and that both are really important, but there are a whole host of other conditions that have to be ripe for an Edison, say, to create a light bulb. Or a William Shockley to create an integrated circuit. It's all coming next on Better Mousetrap. On Big Picture Science. From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, the Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less. So you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Big Picture Science. We're at the Tech Museum here in San Jose. And we've been speaking with Elena Connor. She's the Vice President for Content Development here at the Tech Museum. Why is the Tech Museum here in the Silicon Valley? Of all the places that it could be, why is it here in uh, the South Bay of uh, Northern California? Why is this the heart? of technological development in the last 30 years. The Tech Museum is here in Silicon Valley because there is a very unique culture and set of resources and set of people who made this place, and by this place I mean this region, so very special, not only in our lifetimes but in the course of human history. Silicon Valley created the Silicon Microchip, and that's why it's called Silicon Valley, as this one invention that really expanded human beings ability to be creative and to uh, to compute. So, so it's really the invention of the integrated circuit, the computers and so forth, everything. Now, you know, the, the stuff that people carry around in their pockets now. Look at this picture here. Now it looks like an abstract painting, something I would find in the Museum of Modern Art, all these different colors, but that's not actually yeah, what it lines, is. Lines, vertical, horizontal lines. Actually it looks like a New York City photograph from the air on a busy night. Uh, mm -hmm. What is it, Elena? Uh, this is a microchip. I hate to sound like a, a geek fangirl, but they are beautiful. And um, this is, I can actually give the brand name. It's an Intel Pentium 4 from 2004. And all those different colored tiny parts are transistors and their connections. And this is what, this is the invention that takes all human knowledge, turns it into zeros and ones, 
and allows us to crunch it faster than any human brain ever could. Thanks, Elena. We'll talk to you a little bit more in, in just a moment. You know, when we talk about great inventions, Seth, listeners to the show may know that you were the inventor of the electric banana, or at least you claim to be. What is the electric banana? Did you really invent this? I wouldn't claim to be the inventor if I weren't. I don't think anybody else would claim to be the inventor. Yes, I did invent it, Molly. And frankly, it was just a rubber banana from a department store that had a little light bulb on it and a switch and a cord. You plug it in, flip the switch, and the bulb went wrong. Let's see, the first question that comes to mind is, oh, that's right, why? Yeah, well, uh, to be honest, it was a gift for a uh, girlfriend of the time. It was her birthday, and I thought I would send her this electric banana because it had appeal. What, what else did you invent, uh, create, that you're proud of? Oh, I don't think I'm proud of any of it, but there was one thing I was trying to build for a long time. I had taken a big juice can, and I was trying to build a little sort of miniature tape recorder in it, and it would be a big switch on the juice can. You flip the switch, and the tape recorder would start playing, ah, ha, ha. You know, I was going to call it canned laughter. I couldn't get it to work, and then some company came out with it. But I could see how you might need a device of canned laughter, Seth. Did you ever finish it? That, that's not funny, Molly. <laughs> no, but it would be if we had some canned laughter, right? <laughs> well, well, I understand that you took your invention, you took the electric banana, and you showed it to Steve Johnson. He's the author of Where Good Ideas Come From, The Natural History of Innovation. He talks about all the things that have to come together for great innovations to be great. And we'll find out whether or not Seth's electric banana was one of the good ideas. Steven, your book is about inventions, the conditions for inventions to take off, make it big. Uh, I, have, I have an invention here of my own, actually, from back when I was in grad school. It's called the electric banana. Take a look at it. What do you, what do you see there? Uh, this seems to be a banana-like facsimile with some kind of glowing light and a cable coming out of it. I'm not entirely sure what it's for, but I think you should be very proud of your invention. That's kind of you to say. You know, this invention was made, I have to say, a long time ago, and it doesn't do much. This invention, while popular at the time, never really sort of peeled out. It never, <laughs> it never took off. What would it have taken for an invention to take off? Well, there are two elements. There's the core idea itself, which has to be good, and I'm sure electric bananas are good ideas. But there's also the environment, right? You have to be in an environment where both the idea can spread and also where the idea can be shaped and improved upon and can turn into something oftentimes much bigger and different from the core original idea. So maybe to extend this to a six-transistor avocado or something like that? Or, or some kind of social software network maybe would have been good. I mean, there are all, I can think of many, many uses for the electrical banana that were not in the original genius's mind when he came up with it. <laughs> well, well, let me tell you how I did come up with it, because that bears on something you treat in your book. I was uh, shaving one morning and listening to the radio, and they played this old Donovan song, Mellow Yellow, and there's a refrain in the song, electrical banana. And I thought, that's it. It's sort of a eureka moment for me. I just assumed that's the way great ideas really hatch, right? That some guy just comes up with them in their brain standing around. That's the myth we have. But actually, one of the things I'm trying to combat in the book is this idea of that sudden epiphany. More often than not, the great ideas in, that really change the world have these very long incubation periods. In the book, I call them the slow hunch. And they start with this background sense that there's an interesting problem, this hint of something. And sometimes, in some cases, they linger on for a decade before they actually start to become actually useful or a really you know, practical good idea. So there, it's not a eureka moment. I mean, that, that idea of sitting in the bathtub and figuring out the law of buoyancy or maybe Edison, you know, inventing the light bulb, hey, this is the way to do it. Or even Alexander Graham Bell, you know, come here, Mr. Watson, I need you. This is just storytelling then. But for some reason, we want to tell the story that way. It's a funny quirk of our brains, I think, that we want to have a moment of sudden epiphany. But in almost all those cases, you think about Edison and the light bulb, 
There were a lot of people working on it. It took a long period of time. There were other people outside of Edison's firm who were working on it as well. They borrowed a lot of ideas. There's a lot more implicit collaboration that happens in the creation of these great ideas where people take some of these ideas, they take an older technology, and they tinker with it. And they kind of add to it and they slightly improve it. And that's really where progress comes from. So it isn't just a matter of needing a long time to incubate the idea, to turn it from half-baked to fully-baked or whatever, but but it's also elaborating it and taking advantage of developments in other fields. And oftentimes borrowing ideas from other people or collaborating with other people. There's a great story about Gutenberg. Gutenberg had done all this amazing work with metallurgy in making the movable type, which he'd refined and done some brilliant work with that. And he'd worked with inks to kind of make the ink stay on the paper more reliably and and work with the type. But he didn't actually have an actual press mechanism for a printing press. And so he went off, it was was kind of wine harvesting season, he went off into the Rhineland Hills to drink some wine, which is also a good recipe for innovation. And he sees this ancient technology of the screw press, which the vinters were using to press grapes, and it's been around for over a thousand years. And he looks at this thing and he says, wait, that's what I'm missing. That's the missing piece. And so he borrows this technology, ports it over, rejiggers it a little bit, adds his type and his ink. It's the combination of those three or four different parts that enables Gutenberg to change the world. I have to follow up a little bit on what you said about wine possibly being good for <laughs> good for innovation, because I think you also mentioned the fact that it was the introduction of coffee houses right. in Europe that was good for innovation, and that was a shift away from some sort of alcoholic beverage. In some ways, this is a book about the spaces that lead to great innovative thinking, and sometimes that's the space of a media environment or an office building, but sometimes it's a space like the coffee house. The coffee house in the Enlightenment, um, which I've written about quite a bit in even some earlier books, was a great driver of innovation in businesses starting, stock markets starting, but also in science and in politics. And part of it was because it was an intellectual hub where people would come together with different backgrounds and different disciplines, and they would have these free-floating conversations, and that sparked a lot of ideas. But as you said, the other thing was that they were drinking coffee, because up until the point at which coffee and tea became affordable to the mass audience, the daytime beverage of choice was alcohol. People would wake up and they would have a little beer and they would have a little wine, a little gin, a little wine. And so you had a whole population that was just drunk all day long. When you switch from a depressant to a stimulant as a society, you're going to have some better. It's no accident that a great flowering of intellectual activity happens in the wake of that. Has anything great come out of Starbucks? <laughs> no, but there there are these interesting spaces that remind me a little bit of the coffee house now. I mean, I'm sure some great ideas have come out of Starbucks, but there are these new things that are the modern descendant of the coffee house, I think. People are calling them co-working spaces. And they're spaces where there's an office, there's Wi-Fi, there's a laser printer, but the people in the office are all working on different things. There are a couple of little startups. There are a couple of people who are freelancing. There are a few people who work for a company but don't want to work in the office there. And so you get this interesting mix of people working on different things, and they're sharing a physical space. And what often happens is somebody says, oh, wait, we need a designer for two weeks for this project. You're actually a designer. Hey, why don't you join our team for two weeks? Or you've got a partner that can help us solve this problem, or you can help us see this problem from a new way. And it's just a slightly more fluid environment than a traditional office where everybody's working for the same company and everybody's got the same goals. And there's something intrinsically creative about that kind of space. Well, I think companies recognize that, of course, good ideas are in their interest, and they'll have things like brainstorming sessions, get everybody with a brain and throw them into a big room for, I guess, an hour or so and and see what comes out. Is that going to achieve the same thing? No, I think the problem with it is it's a special event, right? What you need to have is systems in an organization that keep that 
exploratory, that hunch environment going all the time, almost like as a background process in the organization. The problem is the way that it normally goes is they say, you know, once a year, we're going to have a corporate retreat for the day and we're going to go off into the country and we're going to brainstorm and be crazy and be creative. And then the rest of the year, we're just going to sit in our office and do our jobs, you know. And the likelihood of that one day being the day when some interesting new collision happens between two different ideas is pretty unlikely. Whereas one thing some companies do is they have these kind of public shared idea boxes where people can suggest things and say, this would be good. How about this idea? How about this idea? And other people can kind of rate them. And those ideas have persistence. So if somebody has a half of a good idea, and then six months later, somebody stumbles across it because it's stored somewhere, and they have the missing piece that turns it into a really good idea, now there's a chance for those ideas to connect with each other and turn it into something new. I'm talking with Stephen Johnson, the author of Where Good Ideas Come From, The Natural History of Innovation. Stephen, in terms of the social media, there's been a fair amount of criticism in the op-ed pages of the major papers and elsewhere saying that, you know, the problem with these things is that they're destroying serendipity. They're destroying, you know, that aha moment that you get when you're in the library looking for a book and you see all these other books on maybe not related topics. and You pull one of them down because you like the jacket design or something like that. All that's gone away with electronic media. You don't agree. I don't agree. I find those arguments baffling because... I often wonder, do these people actually use the web? I mean, the web, for me, it's filled with crazy, uncanny, serendipitous experiences. I'm constantly sitting down at my computer, and three hours later, I find myself reading about something I had no intention of reading about, that I followed a bunch of different links from a blog post to a Wikipedia entry to a newspaper article, and suddenly I'm reading about the migrating habits of butterflies or something like that. I'm like, how did I get here, right? And the point is, that is a mainstream experience now. The number of people who used to sit around browsing through the stacks in a college library looking at the spines of books was an incredibly small portion of the population. But now everybody browses and surfs the web. I mean, that whole activity is part of our daily media diet now. And so I just don't understand that argument. Finally, Stephen, you know, a lot of people look at the new technology, mostly older people, <laughs> and they say, you know, this is, this is just wrecking society. This is a bad thing. Look at these kids. All they're doing is they're texting one another. They're, they're sending tweets about what they had for breakfast right. and other really important stuff like that. You seem very upbeat about all this. You see it as exciting, I take it. Well, the prediction I've been making for a while in a couple of books is that a generation that grows up with interactive media as its assumption about how media works, as opposed to, say, television, which is what I grew up with, because I'm an old person at 42, that that interactive environment is going to make those kids assume a kind of engagement with the world. They're going to assume that instead of just passively receiving data on a screen, that the screen is something that they can shape and participate in and remix and remold in their own image or in the image of the way they want the world to be. That's been a prediction. Now, what we've seen actually with this Google generation that grew up around the web and is now starting to leave college is that those kids are both the most entrepreneurial generation ever. There's no cohort of 25-year-olds that have started as many companies as this group of kids. They're the most politically involved in terms of voter participation, all that, since the early 70s. They're the least socially ill. They're the least violent since they started keeping records on these things. We know this. And so I look at that group of kids and I'm like, the kids are all right, right? There's something really encouraging, and it's following the pattern that I think a lot of us saw, that there would be something powerful about a generation growing up with the idea that media is something that they can control. Stephen Johnson, thanks so much for talking with me. It's my pleasure. Stephen Johnson is the author of Where Good Ideas Come From, The Natural History of Innovation. You can hear more from Stephen on the bonus content that comes from downloading our app from the Apple App Store and on Android. 
You know, Seth, this is really an amazing picture of a, a microchip. I mean, they have microchips here too, which are amazing, but they're so tiny, you need the picture blown up so that you can actually see it. There are what, like a hundred million transistors on this tiny chip, and this was six years ago. Yeah, exactly, 125 million transistors. And, and what do they do? Well, actually, the transistors are just switches. That's all this is. Most computers are just built of lots and lots of switches. So it switches on and off, that binary code is either on or it's off. That's right. Well, which one's the master switch? Uh, that's probably on the outside of the case, the on and off switch. Well, the question of the master switch is actually a key one, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. Now, Steve Johnson spoke with us about the natural history of invention, but there seems to be a natural cycle of invention, too, at least when it comes to information systems. Right. They begin as open systems with widespread public participation. Everybody can get involved. But then monopolies take over, and they close up. Steve Johnson has said he sees a lot of potential for innovation and entrepreneurial activity on the web and its mobile platforms, and we all tend to think of the internet as the Wild West. But even the Wild West was tamed, says Tim Wu, professor of communications law at Columbia University. We're seeing partnerships now in internet and media companies that may restrict innovation in the future, and if so, it wouldn't be the first time. So what happens to innovation when companies are just eyeing the bottom line and what inventions have been lost to history? Remember the master switch? Tim Wu's book is The Master Switch, The Rise and Fall of Information Empires. Telephone, radio, television, motion pictures, internet, all these industries began the same way. There is typically an open phase, as I call it, an era when there's a lot of new companies, there's a lot of competition, often very utopian dreams of what the future will be like. Uh, there's radio in the 1920s, the telephone around the turn of the century. Uh, the internet 1990s on our own, uh, where, where everything is going to be different. Nothing will ever be the same again. And then typically after about 30 years, the industry reconsolidates into a much more closed form. And that, that's what I call the cycle. And it repeats for the telegraph, for the radio, for film, for all these industries. And uh, the, one of the interesting questions whether that's happening to the internet right now. Well, let's take a particular example here. You mentioned radio. You know, radio is an invention that came out of 19th century physics, yeah. right? And, and at the beginning of the 20th century, there was a little bit of uh, radio experimentation by individuals. And then by the 1920s, it became a commercial operation. Uh, what was it like in, in those, those early days? Because that was the Wild West of radio. Nobody knew yeah. where it was going. Uh, right? The 1920s are a fascinating time. And I think something that a lot of people who were uh, excited or were excited still about the internet, looked to the 20s as the original inspirational period because, as you said, it was founded by amateurs, people who had these ideas. Well, hey, why don't we just play radio for everyone? There was no government regulation to speak of, very, very loose government regulation. Uh, you basically just told the government what you were doing. So it was kind of an anyone goes, a little bit like the web, again, where you have web logs by, by anyone. And why people are particularly interested is it went from a very open industry in the 1920s to a very closed, consolidated, dominated industry by the 30s and 40s, basically under the leadership of NBC and CBS. Okay. Now, so is there any parallel between that model that uh, applied to radio almost 100 years ago and the Internet today? You know, again, you have a, a medium which starts with amateurs and experts and so forth, and people have very uh, utopian and idealistic hopes of what the internet will do. It'll make us a single world, unite everyone, uh, make people friendlier. And it uh, also has become quite commercial. Now, the internet hasn't quite flipped into a totally commercial model the way radio has, but there is, uh, I think, a sense in that there is an increasing move to there being you know, three or four big internet firms who are everyone. 
And I think also advertising has really driven the, the story of the Internet in a way that we don't always realize. I mean, Google, the most powerful Internet company, is an advertising company, first and foremost. And so in both of these areas, the growth of a commercial model has been driven by advertising. And it's interesting to see whether the Internet will, in some sense, become completely commercial or whether it will retain its amateur and idealistic character. Tim, the master switch, the title of your book, actually comes from the radio industry, does it not? It actually comes from uh, TV broadcasting. It's a quote from Fred Friendly, who was a famous newsman. He, he liked to say that, you know, all these debates about the First Amendment, that's a superficial sort of debate. The real debate is over who controls the master switch, and it's a metaphor. That's the idea that if you really want to control communications in a country, you need to control the underlying infrastructure. And uh, if you can cut your country off the Internet, say, or if you can control what goes on the TV, you really have a deeper level of power than just mere censorship. But, well, Tim, what, what many of these industries seem to have in common, to, uh, now, to telephone industry, television, radio, movies, is that they all depend on a network. And whether that's a physical network, fiber optics in the ground these days, or, you know, copper cables in the case right. of, uh, you know, the telephone industry and so forth, or, or just a, a network of movie theaters and so forth, mm. is that... They they have this, if you will, this huge infrastructure. And apparently, it seems that once you build something like that, you move toward monopoly. Maybe yeah. maybe not so surprising, actually. You want to protect your investment. Can, can you describe how AT&T did that? Oh, sure. Yeah, networks uh, convey an enormous amount of power to whoever controls it, but also tend to lead to monopoly for a lot of reasons. The most valuable phone system, to take AT&T's example, is the one with the most phones on it. Uh, even today, if you think, why is Facebook successful? It's because they have the best social network. Everyone else is there, so what else would you join? So, Tim, AT&T had this massive infrastructure for, for telephones, but how'd they get into the radio biz? Because they did. Right. There's a secret memo I came across when I was researching, and they said, AT&T said, we haven't made this very public, but radio is to be a monopoly, and we are the ones to run it. We are the nation's great communications monopolist, and so they envisioned a future where AT&T would be the trusted guardian of the telephone, which they were, and they had basically been given a federal uh, monopoly over the telephone, and they would take care of all of radio. And ultimately, it didn't happen, but if that had happened, uh, AT&T would have dominated communications to a level that only can be paralleled in countries like Germany and the Soviet Union at that time. Well, just because you have telephone lines that extend to every city in the country, I mean, how does that affect you uh, if you're in the radio biz? What people don't realize is until even the 1970s, the radio and television networks were completely dependent on the phone network. At a certain point, whoever controlled the phone lines was also in the best position to be a radio company, and that is not always obvious. We'll hear more from Tim Wu in a moment. He's talking about, of course, how AT&T was in a position to take over the radio networks in the 1920s because they controlled the wires, they controlled the cables all across the country. And if you're going to have a network that broadcasts the same programs in San Francisco or in San Jose, where we are now, as in New York, then you need to deal with a company that has the cables that can take that signal across the country because, gosh darn it, your AM radio transmitter can't do it. And so AT&T got into the radio business that way. Exactly right. And we'll hear more about that story and the consequences of that in just a moment. You're listening to Better Mousetrap on Big Picture Science. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. 
With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Well, Molly, we're here at the Tech Museum in San Jose, and we're going to follow Tim Wu's trail through information technology just a bit farther. Now, we've heard how radio, which after all is one of the great inventions, saying this on the radio, of course, got started. <laughs> that's right. We're biased, I think. Well, that's right. And it led to the birth of RCA, the Radio Corporation of America, and the National Broadcasting Corporation, NBC, whose early domination in the radio market was led by an interesting and pivotal character. There's this guy, David Sarnoff, and this is a guy who, I think he was a radio amateur. In fact, I've heard stories that he may have picked up the distress signals from the Titanic or something. I don't know. But he was at Radio Corporation of America. Now, these guys, you know, were building vacuum tubes. They were building hardware and so forth. But he went farther than that. He got involved in broadcasting. Can, can you tell us the, the story of David Sarnoff? Because it's, yeah. it's inspiring and then it's... Uh, Maybe not so inspiring. <laughs> well, he, he's an absolutely fascinating central character to the history of radio and either inspiring or disturbing. That Titanic story you just mentioned turned out to be a fabrication. He uh, had invented this legend of himself as the man who took the calls from the Titanic. And he had had some minor role, but that had been his story for years, and, and he just lied about it. And he also, uh, he had sort of saw himself as a prophet. He was a very important figure. Uh, he had a tendency to later on describe himself as inventing things that he had sort of been on the sides of. Anyway, his importance is that he ultimately was the man who founded NBC after another round of industrial combat with AT&T. Uh, and I won't go on to all the details, but he was the visionary, essentially, who created the National Broadcasting Corporation. And his vision was powerful. He had the idea of, of one centralized radio network for the whole country that would be much better than any other radio network that had come before. And in many ways, you know, we're talking about NBC still today. His vision uh, is still with us. So uh, he's a, a central figure. Uh, wh what he's known for, and I, I won't go too long on him, is he also ultimately claimed to be the inventor of television. And he made sure that television, when it was born, was essentially a vassal or a servant to the radio industry by, by destroying the early television industry. He was a genius of industrial combat, and um, for that reason very important to the history. Well, maybe you could elaborate a bit on that. I mean, how, you know, uh, it is true that, that uh, RCA right. had, a, you know, played a big role in the development of the equipment required for television, particularly color television and so forth. I, I don't quite understand. How was he trying to control television? How was he trying to make it subservient to radio, I guess? David Sarnoff was determined that TV not be born as its own industry. And this is crucial to understanding invention. There is this man named Farnsworth who actually invented the uh, electronic television, and most people haven't heard of him. With television, there was not a new company the way there was with radio. Uh, there was just the radio companies. As, and ultimately, the first television stations were the radio stations, NBC, CBS. And you might wonder, well, why wasn't there a new industry? Well, it was mostly the work of David Sarnoff, who, as I said, was rather a genius of industrial domination. And his real trick was using the federal government to prevent an independent TV industry from being born by banning television ultimately until the late 40s, even though it had been originally invented in the late 20s. So he used the federal government uh, to control 
the birth of television and make sure it was the child of the radio industry so it didn't replace the radio industry but was controlled by it. Well, one might say that's more than a little bit manipulative. Uh, He did something similar to FM radio, did he not? Yeah, uh, FM radio was a challenge to AM radio and the AM industry and David Sarnoff, again, mostly in the leadership of it, prevented FM from really getting started, mostly by federal government. If you really want to suppress an industry, the best thing possible is to use federal regulation. And FM, even though it was obviously technically superior, did not really get started until the 70s, even though it was around the 30s. Armstrong, the inventor of it, was so distressed by the whole thing that he actually jumped off a building, driven to his death by David Sarnoff, frankly, who, when you read the history, you know, has some good points, but ultimately was uh, in many ways quite evil. Did you have any speculations as to what might have happened if Armstrong's invention, FM radio, had been allowed to expand uh, in, in the late 30s? Armstrong's dream was to return to the old, open, wild days of radio in the 1920s. He felt that radio had become too commercial and too boring and centralized. And he thought with FM, we'd have room for as many voices as you needed. He saw the potential of FM as almost unlimited. Frankly, we still haven't realized the full potential of FM radio, I'll, I'll say. Uh, that we have dedicated too much spectrum to other things. But you could have as many radio stations as you want. Now, obviously, you might lose uh, some quality, but you could have voices for anyone who wanted to have them. What Armstrong wanted was basically like the Internet. (laughs) You know, he wanted a world where everyone could have a voice. And I think it's a very powerful vision, but it's one that the AM radio industry was not interested in. Well, there's a presumption here that FM offers some advantages over AM. Now, of course, and this is a technical point, but FM is far less susceptible to static and, you know, scratchy sounds and so forth. You could have hi-fi and that sort of thing. But what was Sarnoff afraid of here? I think he was afraid that people wouldn't listen to the AM stations, that there would just be competition. The NBC model, business model, was predicated on having a few giant stations, clear channels sometimes, that the whole nation listened to at a certain time, and that was crucial giving an advertising model. With FM, it was shorter range and uh, particularly lower power stations. You could have tons of FM stations, very clear, but then you would have a highly fragmented audience who weren't all listening to your ads for Frosted Flakes. And so it was a very great danger to the business model of the AM industry. I have to say that Sarnoff was kind of prescient here because this has happened, hasn't it? I mean, with the advent of cable television, it's exactly that. The whole market's been fragmented. Yeah, well, he was he was right. They were worried about fragmentation. Uh, you can call it fragmentation or you can call it freedom of speech. Those are different words. <laughs> well, you write in your book, one generation's radical invention is the next generation's unyielding dinosaur. You know, that seems to be really a good description of what's happened in these industries. Very true. I mean, you think about it. Uh, the broadcasting industry, which I described the 20s, was new and vital and dynamic. <laughs> and Ten years later, they're trying to kill FM, and then they're fighting over television, and then the television industry tries to kill cable. The cable industry, even in our own times, has sort of not tried to kill the Internet, but tried to control the Internet. Uh, you know, nobody likes the new thing because, of course, it's going to replace them and leave them in the dustbin of history. Yeah. We've described how these industries arise, both entertainment and distribution channels, the entertainment that's produced to fill those channels and so forth. And we've sort of come down a little bit hard here on the monopolies because one wants to do that. But on the other hand, there have been some advantages to these monopolies, right? Right. I mean, the the, the big motion picture companies used to be factories for turning out films, and that meant that they could make uh, small films, low-budget experimental films, all sorts of things that, you you know, it would be very hard to do now. Much of the why I wrote this book, The Master Switch, is grappling with monopoly. 
you know, our natural instinct is monopoly, is bad, evil. On the other hand, they, as you've just said, have certain advantages. AT&T, the greatest monopolist of all, built the greatest phone network in the world and what ultimately was the backbone of the Internet. In the entertainment industries, as you said, the film industries are a cartel. On the other hand, they produce extremely high-budget, fancy movies that are hard to do with a fragmented industry and are able to take some risks, as you point out. My feeling is that monopolists tend to go through a golden age, especially when they get started. There's this moment when they're founded where they really are reaching for the best. The problem with monopolists is they tend to stay around forever. And when they should be done, they stay there and cling on to life, you know, like one of these zombies. <laughs> I guess zombies are already dead. I don't know. <laughs> you know, AT&T was incredible for the first 30 or 40 years. They hung on for 70 years. And by the end, we're just trying to choke everything out of existence that might challenge them. And so th- there's this real difficulty in knowing when a monopoly has been in power long enough that we have to bring an end to it. Corporations don't expire by themselves. And eventually we'll face this problem on the Internet. We'll be like, Google, man, these guys were great in the 2000s, and now they're just trying to suffocate everybody. We need to do something about this. And that is the essential challenge of the information industries in my my mind. Well, Tim, it seems that there really is, then, a life cycle to uh, the entertainment and the, uh, the news biz, if you will. Uh, it's, you know, the technology is one thing, but the life cycle is is there forever. You've kind of speculated on what's going to happen to the Internet. Have we already entered the age in which we're seeing the rise of the big monopolies? Where are we in the life cycle of the Internet? I think we're in an age, the early age of the rise of golden age monopolies in the Internet. I think that companies like Google and Facebook and Apple are hitting their stride and creating incredible products. They're in a really good spot right now. I mean, they, in some ways they're annoying, but generally speaking, they're, they haven't shown those signs of decay and corruption, which you see in, in, in uh, firms that have been around too long. The question is whether we can maintain that, either through public pressure or media or uh, competition, or whether, you know, like every other company, eventually uh, they will become stagnant and abusive. And that, that's the, the challenge for us uh, going forward, is to try to maintain the best of these monopolists without the abuses they ultimately inflict on us. What would you recommend? Should I go buy Google stock or should I start my own search company? Uh, I'd probably recommend neither of those. Um, (laughs) (laughs) If you really want to make it, you got to figure out what's next, and that's extremely hard. Tim Wu, thank you so much for talking with us. It's been a pleasure. Tim Wu is professor of communications law at Columbia University in New York and the author of The Master Switch, The Rise and Fall of Information Empires. And you can hear more from Tim Wu in the bonus content that comes from downloading our app from the Apple App Store and on Android. Now, Seth, Tim Wu speculated on where invention is going in the Internet age or how it might come to an end. Yeah, I don't think it's going to come to an end. I'm just worried that it might not be done by humans anymore. Invention, after all, I mean, it's not just fun, Molly. It's also terribly important. I mean, you see that exhibit over there, that next room down there? I think that they've got some inventions over there that could really reshape the lives of a lot of people in this world. Okay, so now we're in a room right now where there are a lot of sounds. These are all the different demonstrations of it. looks like a lot of different technology. What is this? So this is the Tech Awards Gallery, and this honors the laureates of the Tech's Tech Award program. Well, for example, over here, I mean, this big blue thing uh, looks like some sort of exercise device. It's not, though. <laughs> That's right. It's called the Super Moneymaker Pump, and it's just a treadle pump, and it's for pumping water out of the ground, and the, it's, it's actually called the Kickstart. It also 
also is a money-making opportunity, so people can actually lease a kickstart and then rent it or sell it. So, in other words, you don't just drop these things out of helicopters and say, hey, here's a bunch of pumps for you. You actually create businesses. Right. This program is all about technology serving humanity. There's something kind of ironic that this very high technology is being applied in parts of the world where everything up until now has been reliant on very primitive devices. It's not so much that the technology is all that mold-breaking, it's that you're getting the right technology to the right people in the right time with the right market structures. Well, Elena, thank you so much for showing us uh, you know, some really fabulous stuff. Okay, yeah, thank you and, and goodbye. Thank you for coming on down to the Tech Museum. Well, that's it for our show. Lots of thanks to the inventive minds of Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, Jay Weiler, and Keith Rosendahl. And also to our supporters, Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David. The NASA Astrobiology Institute and the SETI Institute. You've been listening to Better Mousetrap on Big Picture Science. You know, Seth, that is one thing we didn't touch on. A better mousetrap. Was the mousetrap ever improved upon since I last saw it? It was just a little piece of wood and a spring. You put a little peanut butter on there. Once the mouse would touch that, ow. Yeah, well, you know, the thing is, you can make one of those things for under a buck, Molly. I mean, they're very cheap. They're very simple. They work. They don't hurt your pets. Unless your pet is a mouse. In that case, you shouldn't buy one of these things. Look, I don't see any improvement coming down the pike for the better mousetrap, unless, of course, somebody first invents better mice. If you have an idea for a better mousetrap, let us know on our website and our Facebook page. Hey, Molly, what about a trap for the mouse on my computer? 